you have a Bible, could you take it please and turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, as we continue our study in the Gospel of John, uh, we were in verses uh, 1 through 21 last week, and we're going to pick up in verse 22 and uh, study through verse 40 this Sunday. Uh, for all of the amazing food that he has cooked throughout the years, the famous French chef Jacques Papin has said that there is little better in the world than fresh bread, specifically a French baguette, to be exact, which, you know, would make sense for him. Uh, but fresh bread and butter. And I think it's hard to argue with that, really. Uh, with apologies to those of you who may be gluten intolerant, fresh bread is one of the most delicious things that you can eat. Uh, and yet bread is also a very simple thing, isn't it? It's a staple that's found uh, throughout the world. It's, uh, it's what's seen to be the bare minimum to survive. When a snowstorm is threatening Louisville uh, and you walk into Kroger, one of the shelves that will probably be empty is the shelf with all the bread. Um, and bread and water is the stereotypical meal for a prisoner, isn't it? It's just what you need to survive. I wonder if it's that combination of bread being deeply satisfying but also extremely common that leads Jesus to announce to the crowd that had sought him out in this passage, I am the bread of life. He's announcing that, that he alone can satisfy the deep longings of our hearts and satisfy them in a way unlike anyone else. He can give us eternal life and he alone. But he's also saying that that he's the one that can do this for, for all people. One commentator, Milne, writes this, since bread is a basic food universally, there is also the implicit claim that Jesus fulfills this role for everyone. Caviar, like cake and confectionery, is for the few, but bread is for all. He is the savior of the world. And yet it could also be that the, the appeal and the commonality of bread, especially to a group of perpetually hungry farmers like we find in our passage, that those things could have caused those around Jesus to be so focused on their desire for food, for bread, that they completely missed the truth, that the one standing in front of them was not offering them just bread, but was offering them eternal life. And so Jesus says to all who are here, who will hear, don't seek after earthly bread. Receive the heavenly bread. I put our points, it's not, this is why I don't put anything in a PowerPoint. It's not gonna work, that's okay. <laughs> the, the points will not show up on the screen as expected and that's all right. But that's our main idea. Don't seek after earthly bread. Receive the heavenly bread. Last Sunday, we looked at John 6, 1 to 21, where we discovered that around the time of the Passover celebration of the Jews, Jesus went up on a mountain and he sat down, likely to instruct his disciples. However, before he could get a word out, a crowd of people who had heard about and seen the many healings that he had done in Galilee found him. Uh, Jesus didn't send them away when they found him, but we find in the other gospel accounts that he responded by, by healing some of those who had come and also teaching them about the kingdom. And then, as the day wore on, wore on everyone started to get hungry. 
And yet again, Jesus does not send them away, even though that's what the disciples wanted him to do. But rather, he turns to the disciples and he asks them where they can buy bread, buy, buy enough food to feed this large crowd. John tells us that Jesus asked this question as a way of testing the disciples, as a way to see what was in their hearts and how they would respond to that question. Well, they responded by saying, well, we don't have enough money and there's not enough bread amongst all these people for us to share amongst ourselves, so we can't feed everyone here. And at that point, Jesus took the small lunch that had been offered by a boy and multiplied it so that it fed 10 to 20,000 people. And not only that, but when everyone had eaten until they were full, the disciples each had a basket and filled it up with the leftovers. The response of the crowd, you remember, was to, to, take, to, to, to say where they were ready to take Jesus and make him their king. They said that he was most certainly the prophet promised by Moses. And in the midst of this, the Passover time, you remember, so much of what Jesus was doing was reminding them of the story of the Exodus and of Moses. You remember he went up on a mountain just as Moses had gone up on Sinai. He provided bread for them just as bread had been provided in the wilderness. And rather than split this, this, the, the sea as, as God had split the Red Sea, we next find that Jesus walked on top of the water. That second sign happened after this picnic when Jesus had slipped away from the crowd and the crowd had disappeared. And we're told the disciples left as well, deciding not to wait for Jesus, but to get in their boat and to head to Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum, as we've said in the past, uh, would seem to be the, the home base for Jesus's ministry. It was where Peter had a house. And it would also seem that uh, while they didn't know where Jesus was at that moment, the disciples knew that he would eventually probably show up in Capernaum. Uh, maybe this happened often. Maybe Jesus often slipped away and spent time on his own, retreating into the mountains. And so they kind of knew this routine, so they didn't need to stick around and wait for him. Regardless of why they left, they sailed into the night, and we find they were overtaken by a storm. And in the midst of that storm, Jesus came to them walking on the water. After convincing them that he was not a ghost, they took him into the boat, and then that boat immediately arrived at Capernaum. All of that is background that brings us up to the next day, the next morning, which John speaks about beginning in verse 22 of John 6. Let's read John 6, 22 to 40. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only that, that, that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do 
that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, Jesus is saying to the crowd and to each of us, don't seek after earthly bread. Receive the heavenly bread. This, again, is a fathomless passage of Scripture that deserves and requires probably a lifetime of meditation. And so today, as we add a half an hour or so to that lifetime of meditation, let's first note in verses 22 to 26 that there is a way to seek Jesus that is not a seeking of Jesus. There is a way to seek Jesus that is not a seeking of Jesus. Again, that's in verses 22 to 26. We've now entered into the, the day following the two signs that are recorded in verses 1 to 21. And John begins by spending a significant amount of time, if you notice, describing how the crowd discerned where Jesus was and then went about finding him. Like some form of nosy neighbors, we find them counting boats. Uh, they're noting the movements of the disciples. They're keeping their eye on, on Jesus and his position at all times. And in all of this, they discern that he must have gone to Capernaum. And so they boarded some boats that had arrived there. They sailed to Capernaum and they went looking for Jesus. We're told in verse 59 of this chapter that the teaching that we read here occurred in the synagogue in Capernaum. And so it would make sense that that's where the crowd eventually walked in to find Jesus. Now, I don't know if this is true, but in my mind's eye, they, they sort of arrive, arrive a little breathless, you know, because they've been chasing after Jesus. Uh, they walk in and, and they then, they just sort of try to act a little nonchalant, you know, uh, a little casual. They see Jesus and they say something like, oh, hey, Jesus, what are you doing here? <laughs> Funny to find you here, isn't it? Uh, when did you come here, they ask. They call him rabbi, which would make sense in the context of the synagogue, but it also kind of lacks some of the power of the other titles that we've seen in the Gospel of John. And at their arrival, Jesus makes it clear that he knew exactly why they had sought him out. He gives his first of four truly, truly statements in this chapter alone, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. That seems kind of harsh of Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, these folks were seeking him. 
In fact, I think John gives us all these details about their movements to, to make it clear just how much effort they were putting in to seeking him. And then Jesus says something that is not very seeker-sensitive. Uh, back in verse 2, we're told that the crowds were following Jesus. Why? Because they saw signs. And here they are seeking him. But Jesus says it's not because they saw signs. Why are they seeking him? Because they had eaten until they were full the day before. There's a progression here, and it seems to be from curiosity or desire to see something amazing from Jesus to a rabid seeking of Jesus so that they can get what they want. We've talked about the difference between sign faith and word faith, but here we seem to have gone into no faith, but rather just a, a selfish, materialistic desire to get something from Jesus without ever having to believe in him. If that's true, we might start to see why Jesus was so blunt in his rebuke when they showed up at the synagogue. It may also be helpful to remember that the Passover and the events surrounding it are supposed to be on our minds. You, you'll recall how after the deliverance from slavery in Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea, it wasn't long before the children of Israel began to grumble and complain, grumbling, which is actually a word that's used of the crowd here in verse 41 and verse 61, which is not an accident, I don't think. And what, among other things, did the Israelites grumble and complain about? Food. Food and water was always a complaint. And when they got hungry, they forgot all that God had done, and they forgot God himself. And so, too, that happens for us, doesn't it? Our physical appetites, and not just for food and water, but our appetites for anything can become so overpowering that they, they are the only thing that we are ever concerned about. And the scary thing is that we can find ourselves seeking those things in Jesus while not actually seeking Jesus at all. We can see this in how blatant the people are in their request for more food from Jesus as we go through this passage. There appears to be no shame uh, as they say to him, hey, show us another sign. And when you show that sign, make sure it results in us getting something to eat, please. Again, we see these temptations in our own hearts. Hunger can be blinding. Just think about the times when you have been really hungry or really thirsty. You can't think about anything else except finding something to eat or finding something to drink. And so too, we can be so consumed with our earthly physical appetites that we look to Jesus to fill those cravings and miss who he actually is. It's interesting though, not only can hunger be blinded, but I think satisfaction can also keep us from Jesus, can't it? There are those who have their fill of earthly bread, not just in terms of food, but also in terms of anything that money can buy. They find they are content with what they have acquired on their own apart from Jesus. We too may find that we don't lack our daily bread. Most of us don't lack our daily bread. And if we forget to recognize that that comes from Jesus, then Jesus starts to become unnecessary to us. We don't seek him, or, or we don't seek him because we don't think we need him. But we fail to see that Jesus is going to actually offer something, uh, offer something much more significant than physical bread or the meeting of any of our other earthly desires. I think this crowd's attitude should be instructive about the natural attitudes of all people, ourselves included. 
If people sought for these physical things from Jesus, then we should not be surprised if they come to the church, which represents Jesus, seeking for these things as well. And while the church can and should be a place of compassion and generosity to those in need, we need discernment, like Jesus, when it comes to understanding the hearts of others. The desire for material blessing can cause people to seek Jesus while never actually seeking him. And that's why the prosperity gospel is so popular. Namely, because the hard answers of Jesus are not given in such places. Rather, Jesus is held forth as the one who will meet all of your materialistic desires. And suddenly, people are seeking Jesus. But they're not really seeking Jesus. They only want what they can get from him or what they can get from his church. And if we fall into this trap as a church, then suddenly we must remember that we will keep people with what we bring them in with. And if we bring them in because we offer materialistic blessings, then they will cease to come when we don't offer those anymore. <laughs> if we cease to give people what they want, then they, like this crowd, will, will leave. Well, the exchange in verses 25 to 26 is the first part of a conversation between Jesus and the crowd that then extends through verse 65. Uh, it's a conversation where Jesus' part in the conversation seems to get larger and larger as the conversation goes on. Jesus keeps the same themes throughout this teaching, though he becomes more and more straightforward, it would seem, even more confrontational in what he says, building to the moment in verse 66 when we're told that many of those who had followed him stopped doing so after this teaching. And as we seek to understand what he's saying, we've looked at the hearts of those in the crowd. Let's take our second point from verses 27 to 33. It's a long one. <laughs> this is what we'll say. The work God has done means that the work of humans is the work of faith. The work God has done means that the work of humans is the work of faith. I'm purposely using the word work because it's highlighted in this section. And I think Jesus is trying to help us to see that the work he has come to do is greater than providing people with physical food. But the, the people there get so caught up with their earthbound way of thinking and they can only hear his words in terms of physical bread or personal works. Uh, to make this point that the work of God means that the work of humans is the work of faith, Jesus first says to them, stop working so hard for food that fades. Stop working so hard for food that fades. Now, we've just seen all of the effort that this crowd put into finding Jesus, and Jesus makes it clear that their main goal in working so hard to get to him was so that they could get the food he might give them. But he wants them to see that this physical food they are seeking will fade and that it does not satisfy their deep hunger. He says, stop working so hard for food that fades. Have you ever eaten a meal, like a really good meal, and then said at the end of that meal, I never need to eat again? And then you went home that night and you said, you know, I just need a little snack before I go to bed. <laughs> we, we always have to keep eating, don't we? Maybe you could think about all of the, the effort that goes into eating. Jesus' hearers would have had to work in their fields. They would have had to plant and weed and, and harvest. 
We have grocery stores to go to, but that still means that we have to plan out meals and prepare them and then do the dishes when it's all said and done. And there's a lot of work involved in eating every day. So is Jesus saying that all of that effort to feed ourselves is wasted, that we should just never do that? No, of course not. Is in telling us not to work for the bread that perishes, he's not telling us to never buy physical bread, but rather he's saying that our greatest drive in life shouldn't be to get material things that we desire, including food. Of course, we need to eat, but we should eat to live, not live to eat. We should not be obsessed with consuming material things. And we most certainly should not tie our drive for material blessings into our faith in Jesus because he has come not to fill our stomachs or our houses or our bank accounts, but to give us true and eternal life. Well, the mention of work here, at the mention of work, the crowd asks what they need to do to be doing the works of God. Or better yet, They want to know, well, what work is required to receive the blessings that you're offering to us, Jesus? And yet that question presumes their ability to do whatever God might require. And it also keeps the focus of their hearts on earthly food. So as he makes it clear that the work of God is the work of faith, he tells the crowd, stop thinking that work is required to receive God's blessing. Stop thinking that work is required to receive God's blessing. Uh, the first subpoint here underneath the second thought was to stop working so hard for food that fades. And now we're going to think about that Jesus says, stop thinking that work is required to receive God's blessing. The thought that we must earn blessing and goodness is it's kind of hardwired into us. So the crowd assumes that there must be some specific things that they have to do in order to have the blessings of God. But Jesus says that the only work that God requires is what? Belief. And specifically belief in him, belief in Jesus as the one sent by God to redeem his people. That's the work. So is believing a work? Are we saved by works, by the work of belief? Well, is believing a work? We could say yes, because Jesus says it is, but I think Jesus is just trying to turn the idea of works on its head, because belief is not a work, at least in the sense that we think of it. Jesus is saying, you want a work to do? Fine. Believe. Believe that I am who I say that I am, and taste of me as the living bread. That's what you have to do. There's the work. Believe. Taste. Enjoy all that I am. And while such a call goes against our our works-oriented heart, could there be any better news than that? God has sent Jesus, God sends Jesus, not to check up on us, not to make sure that we're doing all the things that are required of us. No, he sends Jesus to live and to die so that through belief in him we can be saved. He's come as heavenly bread to satisfy our souls, and all he wants us to do is receive him, to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's salvation. Yet the follow-up question to verses 30 and 31 revealed that the crowd was missing this glorious point. They'd come looking for food, and nothing that Jesus could say was going to throw them off the scent. So they hear the call to believe, and they say, we'll believe in you, Jesus, sure. 
but we're going to need a sign first so that we know that you're truly from God and that you can truly save us, and then we'll believe. So let's see, what could you do to prove yourself? Oh, here's an idea. You remember in the wilderness when God provided manna, food from heaven? You think you could do that? Could you provide food for us, Jesus? Then we'll believe in you. <laughs> I think we might excuse, we, we can't excuse this, this focus on physical bread, but we might be able to understand it. And Carolyn pointed out to me this week that many in this crowd may have not experienced eating until they were full very often. And they had that day before. And having tasted of it, they just wanted more. That's the danger of physical earthly blessings for we who are very physical and very earthly. These things that we see and we smell and we taste and we touch, this stuff of earth, it becomes so potent to us that we miss the heavenly wisdom of Christ. Remember that theme throughout John's gospel. He's taking us, he's, Jesus is bringing heavenly wisdom to us, but we're so bound in our earthly thinking that we miss the point. And the same thing is happening here. And of course, God is concerned about physical needs, isn't he? Especially the physical needs of people who lack food and water and clothing and shelter. And so we too should be concerned about these things. But the signs of the previous day were primarily for the disciples and they were intended to point everyone there to Christ and to what he could do. But don't miss the fact that it was a compassionate and gracious thing for Jesus to provide food, to provide bread and fish for hungry people that had gathered around him. And in a similar way, as we compassionately share and, and, and seek to help the hungry or the homeless, we are modeling the compassion and the grace of Jesus. But like Jesus, we are also announcing that there is bread that gives eternal life, that there is a home that we are all truly longing for, that there is water that will quench our eternal thirst. And if we don't point people away from the physical food to Jesus, then we're allowing them to remain trapped in a way of thinking that assumes that the greatest blessings that God can give are the ones that we can hold in our hands here and now. We've seen in this section that we should stop working so hard for food that fades, that we should stop thinking that work is required to receive God's blessing, and now we find that we should stop asking for more proof when what is given is sufficient. Stop asking for more proof when what is given is sufficient. The sign the day before was intended to point the crowd to the, the truth of who Jesus is, but here they are simply wanting to have a repeat performance. Why? Because they're hungry again. They want more food. And yet another sign would not draw them into, the, into faith because they missed the point of the first sign. And so too, those who seek more evidence for the reality of who Jesus is really don't need more proof. They simply need to believe the signs that have been given. And in this context, they need to see Jesus for the kind of Savior that he is, namely a Savior who offers eternal, heavenly life, not fading earthly blessings. One commentary sums up the attitude of the crowd in these verses like this. Their agenda is entirely materialistic, so they want a political king, verse 15, who will meet their materialistic needs, verse 26, through their religious works, verse 28. They want a political king who will meet their materialistic needs through their religious works. In contrast, the one who truly sees and believes in Jesus is looking 
to the eternal kingdom of the future. They are seeking the food that endures for all time, trusting that through faith in Jesus, his or her deepest needs and hungers will be satisfied. The child of God seeks eternal food and believes by tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Because it is God alone who can give us what our hearts long for most, Jesus, uh, because, I don't know what that line meant. <laughs> I know, I believe that. God alone can give us what our hearts long for most. Uh, Jesus seeks to make this clear in verses 32 and 33, saying that uh, God, not Moses, had given them manna in the wilderness, a food that didn't even, even endure past a day. And now that he was giving them the true bread from heaven, who would give life to the world, eternal life, never-ending life. To which they say, just like the woman at the well, at the thought of water that would quench her thirst forever, give us this bread always. You can almost see it in their eyes, can't you? They get, they get greedy. They get excited. Bread that will satisfy us forever? Give us this bread always, Jesus. And yet again, they miss the point. That takes us into verse 34. Uh, verses 34 to 40, where we see our third point. The will of God is to bring the people of God into the life of God. Verses 34 to 40, the will of God is to bring the people of God into the life of God. If the key word of the previous section was work, I think the key word here is will. The will of God is to bring the people of God into the life of God. Here Jesus responds to their desire for bread with a monologue that opens up with the first of the seven I am statements found in John's gospel. The Exodus and the Passover are again on our minds as the name I am is the one that God gave Moses when he asked who he should say had sent him to deliver the people. And so we see yet again, Jesus is not equating himself with Moses, is he? He's equating himself with God. He says, I am the I am. Jesus therefore announces, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What a statement. Jesus says clearly what he's been hinting, hinting at this whole time, namely that bread is not what they need but him, and that the bread of the day before was simply a sign pointing to him. He wants them to see that coming to him means they will never be hungry again. He will satisfy the longings of their souls, and he adds that they will also never be thirsty again. He will quench the desires of their hearts. And again, the way to find him is how? It's through faith. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus are parallel. They are the same thing. The way we come to find satisfaction for our souls is how? It's through faith. Faith in Jesus. What an offer. What an amazing offer. The, the bread of life, a bread that will satisfy the hunger and the thirst of our souls. This is a call for to all people to come and to find life in Jesus. It's a reminder that we who are to we who are Christians that nothing will ever satisfy our hunger like Jesus. Sin and temptation tell us 
the lie that there's something outside of Christ that will fill our stomachs, that there's something physical that we can that we can see or taste or feel that will satisfy our hunger. But these words of Jesus remind us that to forsake Jesus is to forsake the only bread that will ever stop the grumbling of our spiritual stomachs. The offer of eternal bread feels like one that no one would ever turn down. The only way that people would turn it down is because they don't actually see it for what it is. And suddenly we see that's why they do turn it down, because they don't see it for what it is. Imagine you're at Waterfront Park this Memorial Day. You're walking around, and as you do, you see a table, and it's covered with food. It's got burgers and dogs. It's got macaroni salad, potato salad. It's got watermelon. It's got pies. It's got everything that makes up the all-American picnic right there. And there, right on that table, is a sign, and it says, free. You look at the table, and you look at the sign, and you're hungry. Here's the question. Will you eat it? I think for most of us, we'd say, probably not. (laughs) We'd come up with a lot of good excuses, wouldn't we? We'd say, well, it's probably for someone else. It's not just for anyone. It's, it's free to a certain group of people, right? Or maybe we'd say, it's probably not actually free. I bet if I start eating, someone's going to come up and say, hey, it's going to cost you X number of dollars to eat this food. <laughs> or you might say something like, eh, it's probably not good food. It's probably fake food. It's probably someone pulling a prank, and it probably won't satisfy me, so I'm not going to eat it. I think in some ways this illustration could help us to see why so many heard what Jesus said and then walked away without feasting on him as the bread of life. They were distracted by so many things and didn't see exactly what it was that was being offered and who it was being offered to. And that's what Jesus, I think, starts to address. He helps us to think why people reject him and his gift of eternal life. Because verse 36 makes it clear that these who came seeking after him and who found him were not actually seeking him and never actually found him. Again, there's a way to seek after Jesus, even to see him, even to be blessed by him in some way, while never actually trusting in him and finding life through him. And yet, there is hope. There's hope in these verses, hope that some will hear Jesus and some will receive him as the true bread of life. There's this shift in focus in these verses onto truths related to God's sovereignty over the salvation of every soul and the fact that all who come to Christ do so because the Father has drawn them. I think we're going to talk more about this next Sunday. We're just going to touch on it this week. But we find that those who are saved by God in this passage, are like the fragments of food that were left over after the feeding of the 5,000. How so? Because not one soul that belongs to Jesus will be lost. They will all be found. Here's what we're going to do, and here's why I wanted to have these points on the PowerPoint, because we're going to go really deep, really fast. And so if you're taking notes and you don't want to try to write this all down, I have it right here and I'll give it to you. But Because we're going to go really deep, really fast, because we want to think about how Jesus speaks about God's will, meaning what God decrees and what God determines 
will happen. So it's not God's will in the sense that he hopes this will happen, but this is speaking of God's will in the sense of this is what will happen because it is God's will. It's determined. There's nothing that can stop it. And he states what God, Jesus states what God's will is in at least five different ways that should encourage us to come to Jesus and to also know that if we have come to Jesus, we are eternally safe in Jesus. So what is God's will? Again, five rapid fire, really deep things. First, these are all right here in verses 37 through 40. You guys could write this outline. What is God's will? First, everyone who belongs to the Father will come to Jesus. Everyone who belongs to the Father will come to Jesus. There is no one who is chosen as a true child of God who will somehow not come to Jesus, which also means that if someone does not come to Jesus, they are not a true child of God. But if you are a child of God, you will come to Jesus. How do you know if you are a true, true child of God? Come to Jesus. <laughs> Second, those who come to Jesus will not be cast out. Those who come to Jesus will not be cast out. If you truly believe in Jesus and you find life in him, you will not someday be rejected by the Father. He will forever love and cherish and satisfy you. You have been adopted by him. He will never disown you. He has taken you as his bride and he will never divorce you. Everyone who belongs to the Father will come to Jesus. Those who come to Jesus will not be cast out. Third, Jesus will lose none of God's children. Jesus will lose none of God's children. Similar to the fact that we won't be cast out, but a little different. I have seven children. As many of you know by now, I'm always trying to keep track of them, especially those younger too, and not lose them. <laughs> Jesus has never lost one of his children, and he never will. Fourth, about the will of God, everyone who believes in Jesus will have eternal life. Everyone who believes in Jesus will have eternal life. There are not people who trust in Christ and find him to be the bread of life and then who fail somehow to receive eternal life. No, everyone who looks to the Son, everyone who tastes of the Son, receives eternal life. Everyone who belongs to the Father will come to Jesus. Those who come to Jesus will not be cast out. Neither will Jesus lose any of his children. Everyone who believes in Jesus will have eternal life. And fifth, God will raise up those who believe in Jesus on the last day. God will raise up those who believe in Jesus on the last day. This is a new idea. He says it twice here, and he's going to say it even more in the, the verses we look at next week. But I find a deep irony here, because here's the irony. Those seeking for physical bread were not going to find it that day from Jesus. But those who look to Jesus for eternal bread will be resurrected on the last day and find themselves in the new kingdom where the marriage supper of the Lamb never runs out. God will raise us up. God will not allow our souls to see corruption. God will raise up his people to eternal life. All of these deep statements about the will of God, and these are as like about as deep as you can get when you start getting into the mind of God, but all of these deep statements about the will of God come together with a very simple application. 
It's John's application for the whole book. Why did he write the book? So that we would believe. And all of these statements about the will of God come together and say, believe. Believe in Jesus. Why? Because if you believe in Jesus, then you, it's like you get swept up into this will of God. If you think about these things as just sort of like this rushing current of blessing from God, and you want to get in that, you know how you get in? You believe. You believe in Jesus. If you believe by tasting of Christ and finding him as the satisfaction of your souls, then, then you've come, you've truly come to Jesus. And if you've truly come to Jesus, then you will never be cast out. And if you've truly come to Jesus, you will never be lost. And if you truly come to Jesus, you will be given eternal life. And if you've truly come to Jesus, you will be raised up on the last day. It all happens, how? By just believing. All you have to do to get swept up in this river of divine salvation is believe, is receive, is taste of the living bread. Remember that table at Waterfront Park? You know who has no problem going and eating all the food on that table? Children. <laughs> Little kids would have no problem. They'd go right up to it. They'd take as much as they want. They'd go back for seconds, with, for thirds, with, with no thought. And so that's why I think there's an invitation here to be like little kids and to just believe that, that Jesus truly can satisfy our souls. And let's never get tired of going back to that table and finding that he alone can fill our hearts. I want to invite you to a different table, <laughs> not one that's filled with hot dogs and burgers and macaroni salad. I want to invite you to this table with bread and juice, a reminder of where our life is, a reminder that Jesus satisfies the deepest longings of our souls, that Jesus brings forgiveness. And how has he done it? He's done it through his broken body and through his shed blood. If you are a follower of Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus, and if you have testified to that fact through baptism, I want to invite you to take this bread and this cup and to remind yourself that Jesus is the one who satisfies the deepest longings of your soul and that Jesus is the one who brings forgiveness. If that's not true of you, I'd invite you just to let the bread and the cup pass as we seek to protect the sacredness of what this meal represents. But if you are in Christ, I invite you uh, to join us in taking this meal. And I want to even invite you, we've got lots of bread. It's a big loaf, and we're a small group. And if you want to take a bigger piece of bread than you normally do, just to remember that Jesus is the one who satisfies, go for it. I mean, make sure there's enough for everyone. But invite you to, to, to maybe um, enjoy a bigger piece of bread today. Um, and so I want to take a moment of silence uh, to prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together. And then I will pray. Uh, and then, Trevor, could I ask you to help me to pass the bread in the cup? So let's take a moment of silence, and then I will pray. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for so often seeking earthly bread. Help us now as we take this Lord's Supper to receive afresh the heavenly bread that is Christ, to remind ourselves that our hope is in you alone and that you alone can satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts.
ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.